In many cells, RNA plays an essential role in regulation. Technological innovations are needed to further understand the role of RNA molecules in regulating basic biological function. Further, there is a need to expand the biochemistry toolkit to understand how large groups of RNAs are working in parallel inside living cells. The Spitali lab develops novel biochemical approaches toward understanding the role of these RNA molecules in cell biology as well as disease. Today, we are going to learn about these new methods and tools in the RNA world from our guest, Dr. Spitali himself. This is Radio Bio. Hello and welcome to Radio Bio. I'm your host, Morgan Quayle. And I am your co-host, Stephen Wilson. We are joined here today by Dr. Rob Spitali, a researcher at UC Irvine. Yeah, thanks for coming up here today. No problem. Dr. Spitali, do you mind telling us a little bit about your journey? Yeah, so I my journey, I think, by comparison to a lot of other people, is really unconventional. So something that I didn't tell you yesterday was I originally went to college to be a history teacher for high school students. And... Um, because I was, I've always been very fascinated by history and the things that it can teach us and how we can use it to learn new things. And so I went there. And then as part of, so I went to a small liberal arts school in upstate New York, SUNY Fredonia. And part of the curriculum there was you had to take general classes in the beginning. And I was very adventurous. So I chose to take general chemistry. And I fell in love with chemistry. And I was fascinated by the fact that things all around us are controlled by chemistry and those can be broken down into very basic principles. And that was something that I really didn't learn before in high school. Um, so then, then I became a, a bio major at that point. And when I was in sophomore organic chemistry, I was even more in love with organic chemistry. So I want to do organic chemistry research. And then to do that, I had to be a chemistry major. So I ended up getting two bachelor's of science degrees, one in biology and one in chemistry separately. Then I decided to go to grad school to do chemistry. But when I was, when I was an undergrad biochemistry class, something really amazing was happening outside in science. And that was we were starting to solve the structures of the ribosome by X-ray crystallography to high resolution. And the amazing thing that came out of that was that in the center of the ribosome was RNA molecules and they were performing the catalysis, which now seems like an obvious thing. But at the time, so maybe I'm aging myself a little bit, but at the time it was this amazing thing and I was totally captivated by the beauty of structural biology. And so that's what I wanted to do as a graduate student. And then um, I went to University of Rochester and enrolled in the chemistry department there and joined the lab of Joe Wedekin, where we were using X-ray crystallography to study the structure of non-coding RNAs um, and more specifically ribozymes, which are RNA enzymes, and riboswitches, which are RNAs that recognize small molecules. And so... Spent five years studying RNA structure, extra crystallography, some organic chemistry. And then I said, 
I want to learn something new again. So then I uh, went to Stanford and studied um, cell biology. It was really funny because when I joined the lab in Stanford, I was the only person in the lab that had never done PCR. So I actually had an undergrad teach me how to do PCR. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, that was interesting. But um, yeah, so I learned cell biology. And for my first year, it was really, really hard because I had no idea how to do anything. Yeah, very steep learning curve. So I didn't know how to do anything. And, you know, uh, bless Howard for being so patient. Maybe he really wasn't patient, but he told me he was patient. Yeah. Um, and then uh, I learned cell biology and, and genomics, which at the time was sort of this really burgeoning thing. Um, and now it's turned into a monster. You know, everybody's doing transcriptomics, genomics, and things like that. The other big thing that was happening while I was a postdoc, which I got to see in real time, was the transition from microarrays to sequencing. And that was really, you know, um, just in the span of the time that I was at Stanford for about four and a half years, sequencing became a rare thing, if at all, to, you know, the go-to assay, which was an exciting thing to see. So now, um, you know, because of that weird winding road, my lab tries to take all those disparate disciplines and combine them into our research program. Um, so that's basically how I got here. So for our listeners out there, do you mind describing your research focus now in greater detail? Yeah. So if I was, if I was to use a couple words to describe our research program, um, I would say that I would argue that we're chemical biologists. So what I mean by that is, um, you know, we, we study RNA biology. That's the main focus of our lab. But we usually start by asking a question, which is, what is something about RNA biology that's very difficult to measure or assay um, inside cells? And then we say, okay, well, if we could think of a way to build a small molecule by using organic chemistry, can we build a small molecule that would allow us to study some facet of RNA biology that's currently not doable? And so the cool thing about chemistry is that it gives you a lot of control it allows you to make very precise measurements. And if you can combine the precision of chemistry, so something you're very you know, focused or in particular want to know, with something like transcriptomics, which is a very wide field view, our idea is that we can measure something very precisely, but do it for thousands of RNAs in parallel. And the goal is to try to define how groups of genes or groups of RNAs are acting through a common mechanism to control cell biology. So when, when Morgan approached me about interviewing you for the podcast, he showed me some of your papers and, of course, like your lab website. And it kind of sounds like you're a kind of an inventor with all these techniques. And it was interesting to read how you look at these questions and you find that there's a need you know, the study, these specific processes, and how you go about designing a method to answer these questions. That's a little bit different than a lot of, you know, question and hypothesis-based mm -hmm. science where mm -hmm. these professors have a new technique that's been given to them or kid science, and they want to discover something new that's happening in the cell, but instead you're, you're enabling these people to do that. Yeah, I think the other, the other important thing, though, is that when we develop... Um, you know, so in my lab, I try to preach that we pay attention to the scientific method. So usually when we are developing something, we have a specific hypothesis in mind. 
But the hypothesis is not a traditional hypothesis like, oh, if I knock this gene down, I hypothesize that X, Y, and Z is going to happen, and I can test that by knocking the gene down. Um, things that we are interested in are, you know, we are more interested in asking a question, if we make X, Y, and Z measurement, we predict that it's going to tell us what X, Y, and G genes are doing. Um, so we do pay attention to the scientific method, but you're right, it's it's completely non-traditional. And I think, you know, our lab is is sort of designed to select for people that are tinkers and that want to build new things and not so much traditional biology. Um, but I hope we can change that a little bit by by starting to do more biology in the lab, for sure. We should actually edit that back into after a few of our... Our other questions okay. that were leading into that. I'm sorry. No, it, it's fine. I was gonna fall through on that. So the idea that you're kind of putting out there is kind of like a like slow acting gene expression where you know you have to transcribe fresh RNA, you know, slow, and then there's fast where it's kind of already made but it's not made into like the protein product. Yeah, that's right. So the so the modifications. Um, one of the the cool things that's been discovered very recently is that modifications can control translation selection. So not only which genes get translated, but how much or how many copies of protein get translated from an RNA. And the other thing that's really neat is it can control RNA decay. So, you know, cells usually are producing some level of RNA molecules constantly, and you can tip the scale by doing RNA decay. And so there's two levels to control how much protein is being output from an RNA molecule by modifying it and then unmodifying it, yeah, without having to go all the way through the nucleus. I think one of our classes we normally talk about how regulation is governed by um, the production of RNA, but not necessarily yeah. the degrade of it and the concentration that way. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, what's really, what's really fascinating about RNA molecules is that you can classify them by a couple of things. So one way to classify them is they're, genes, so what's happening on the on the DNA and how the DNA is demarcated to produce both coding and non-coding RNAs, but also the half-lives of RNA mm -hmm. can be very different depending on the gene type. So for example, housekeeping genes, which constantly need to be around, you know, they're making a lot of the components or their their messages are translated in a lot of the components that sell these all the time. They tend to have very long half-lives. But a lot of the genes that are in different uh, responsive that make for proteins that are important for signal transduction and things like that, they can have very short half-lives because you can control them. You can, you can impart a great deal of control by simply changing the half-life a little bit, right? Yeah, so there's several layers of, of that. So for example, Jeff Collar's lab at, um, at Case Western has some really recent beautiful papers showing that codon optimality can be important for regulating RNA degradation. So that's one level. The second level of regulation, which um, my lab's very interested in, is um, is RNA structure. So for example, in some of the three prime UTRs of messenger RNAs, there are structural elements that can prevent or enhance RNA degradation. And, um, you know, just to get back to simple, uh, simple life forms or simple species, Bacteria and viruses rely almost entirely on RNA structure to control their transcriptome. And 
that's something that is very dynamic and very responsive. But yeah, so there's, you know, RNA binding proteins, microRNAs, RNA structure, codon optimality. There are several layers of regulation. You know, the cell, the cell does itself a favor by being very redundant. Um, and that's because, you know, if we think about it, our cells are constantly dividing. We have to have a way to maintain their normal biology. But if, and if there was one mechanism, could very, very well be prone to mutation and disease. Very easy, right? But if we can compensate for that by having many, many mechanisms, then it's much better. In your research, how does RNA binding proteins affect RNA biology? So I'll draw the corollary to the genome again. So genome has um, a group of proteins called histones, and those histones have uh, long tails on them, which can be chemically modified in a combinatorial way to tell you what genes to turn on. Okay, so there's a combinatorial code. And what we've learned very recently, mostly from work from Jack Keane's lab and Pat Brown's lab, is that RNA molecules can be decorated with different types of RNA binding proteins. And they actually have a combinatorial code for telling an RNA, you know, when to be exported from the nucleus, where to be transported inside the cytoplasm, when to be translated once they get to where they're supposed to be, how they're, how they're um, degraded and things like that. Now, the problem is the getting a real insight into the combinatorial code is really difficult because there are approximately 500 RNA binding proteins in the human genome. And if you think about you know, inside cells, you can have as many as 30,000 different uh, types of RNAs. So the question is, how do I match 500 to 30,000, right? That's not an obvious thing to do. So um, what we're very interested in is trying to understand the combinatorial code. And then if we do that and we learn the lessons from what we have learned about single proteins, perhaps we can make predictions about when you have a combination of single proteins, this is what an RNA is supposed to do, right? Yeah. So you can think of it like like proteins are almost like traffic control towers, and they tell RNAs what to do and where to move around and how to behave. And that's what we're really trying to understand. Because it's absolutely true that there is never a naked RNA in the cell. It is always talking to proteins in some capacity. So think about it this way. RNA is transcribed. First thing it does is talk to proteins that splice it. Okay, so it's bound by proteins right away. Right. Then after it's spliced, it's bound by proteins that put a poly A tail on it. So, okay, that's another group of proteins. And then what it does is see proteins that say, all right, time to go to the nuclear pore complex. And then you're exported. And then when, when it's exported, some of those proteins are still bound, but new proteins bind to it and say, okay, this is where you're supposed to go inside the cell. So the membrane, the ER, whatever. And then once it gets to its destination, a new group of proteins is bound that tells it to be translated. And then a new protein new set of proteins is bound to tell it to be degraded. So constantly, during its entire lifetime, it's bound by proteins. So what we're trying to do is figure out which proteins are coming on and off each RNA during the lifetime. What does that mean? What is that going to tell us about how to control it? But the moonshot goal here is to then take what we learn and then start mining a lot of disease databases, find mutations in RNA binding proteins, find mutations in RNAs that explain why certain genes can be misregulated. What we do in my lab is try to develop tools that can be used with genomics to get mechanistic insight into what RNA is doing, not just the laundry list of RNAs that are expressed or proteins that are expressed or whatever. It's a mechanistic insight.
We talked about how RNA is used to regulate processes within the cell. Do you mind describing <clears throat> what epigenetics is and what long non-coding RNAs are and how they play a role in this gene expression? Yeah. So um, the classic classic way to understand epigenetics is that when, you know, in the beginning, we are all come from one cell that has one genome, yet somehow we that single cell turns into many different types of cells, cardiac cell, neuron, you know, a retina cell, you name it, it's just to- totally different types of cells. And the way that does that is not because the genome changes necessarily, but the way the genome is controlled changes, and that's epigenetics. So the ability to tell the same genome to turn on certain genes at a certain time or turn them off for a certain time, that's epigenetics. And that's done by chemical modifications on histone tails, chemical modifications on the DNA, CPG islands, etc. Um, so the epigenetics is a way of, of how the cell turns certain genes on and off from the same genome and does that uniquely for each different type of cell. Okay. So how do long non-coding RNAs come into play? So long non-coding RNAs are a newly described class of molecules that are greater than 200 nucleotides long. So that's the long part. And the non-coding means that they are RNA molecules that do not code for proteins. So they will not make proteins. And um, the reason this is so uh, important is that, you know, for decades we followed the central dogma, which is that DNA will make an RNA, and that RNA, with few exceptions, is destined to be translated into a protein. And when we started sequencing um, transcriptomes of cells, this is only 12 years ago, for example, what we started to realize is that there's a ton of RNA that doesn't come from parts of the genome that are destined to be proteins. Right. So people started scratching their heads, and for a while they thought it was a mistake or it was just junk junk RNA or junk DNA, whatever you call it. Um, but something very interesting happened. Um, in fact, it was discovered in my advisor's lab, my former advisor's lab, Howard Chang's lab. And that got back to trying to understand the question, if the genome looks the same at all positions, made up of the same histone octomer, DNA wrapped around this histone octomer, how is it that certain genes can be turned on and off? If it all looks the same, why isn't it just a random distribution of genes on or off, right? right. And so um, Howard's lab made the seminal discovery that in fact, long non-coding RNAs can bind to what are called chromatin-modifying complexes or chromatin-remodeling complexes, which are responsible for turning genes on and off and actually guide them to specific genetic loci. So the RNA touches the protein, takes it to where it's supposed to be. And what's really remarkable is that this can happen both in cis and in trans. So in cis, the RNA is transcribed from a locus, and then it turns off or on the gene that's right next to it. And more often than not, that's a coding gene. Okay, so this is sort of like a dimmer on a light switch. Think of it that way. Instead of just turning it on, what happens is the act of transcription next door that makes this RNA, how that's controlled tells this uh, gene nearby, which could be important to be on or off. Okay, so that's in cis. But what's even more remarkable is that some of these things work in trans. So what that means is that the RNA is made, and then it touches the chromatin complexes, and then actually takes them to a different chromosome in the nucleus to turn on the genes. So, yeah, there's a whole, you know, we, we don't understand a lot of mechanistically 
about how these RNAs do that. But what we do know now is that this seems to be a very pervasive mechanism in uh, especially eukaryotic cells for controlling uh, genes to be turned on and off. So earlier we talked about uh, the concept of a transcriptome, which is just like a library of messenger RNA for protein or gene expression. And in reading one of your papers, you touched upon the idea of a epitranscriptome. Uh, could you clarify this concept for them? Yeah. So the epitranscriptome um, goes back to the earlier questions about M6A RNA methylation. So epigenetics, okay, chemical modifications on chromatin and DNA, so epigenetics, okay, Um the epigenome is chemical modification on DNA, which can be dynamic, turned on and turned off. The epitranscriptome is chemical modifications on RNA, which can be deposited and taken off. So the same kind of thing. But I think the, the recurring theme between like epigenetics, um, epigenome, epitranscriptome is that they are dynamic. They can be put on and taken off. And there are, you know, classes of proteins, which are readers, writers, and erasers that control all that. Um, and so that's what the epitranscriptome is. Yeah. Is that something that can be influenced by our environment or is it something that's influenced by cell signaling? Yeah. Uh, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty standard. Like, yeah. Please tell me more. Yeah. So, um, there's a lot of, of different, um, things that control. So for example, one of my favorite papers is actually in neuroscience where, um, so, so the concept, so neuro, neurons are really special because they're post-mitotic and, that is is highly suggestive that things like chemical modifications could play critical roles in controlling gene expression. It turns out that, you know, in learning and memory protocols, it's been shown over and over and over again that chemical modifications on DNA, so epigenome, is important for regulating gene expression in neurons because they don't get the chance to go through the cell cycle and refresh their genome. They have to have these sort of things turn on and off. So that's why I think that's why I think neurons will be a very important place to study a lot of the dynamics of chemical modifications because they have to be able to respond in real time. So you're always learning, right? And you're always like, you know, for example, there are these cells in your brain called grid cells where you walk into a room and you automatically know the spatial distribution of things, right? But the thing is that each room you walk into, those cells have to respond to that environment differently than the previous room that you were in. And that happens to happen in a matter of seconds, right? It's not like you walk into a room, pause for 10 minutes, right. and then so you say, responding. yeah, so the response is very fast. So things that respond dynamically to control those cells also have to be fast, right? You don't have the time to like completely rewire your transcriptome. You have to be able to do it in faster times. So that's why I think modification dynamics will be critical for controlling how those neurons respond. What is RNA editing and how does this affect the response? Yeah. So RNA editing is another class of what I would consider the epitranscriptome. So um, let's just stay with M6A as the example. So the enzymes that make M6A take adenosine and convert it to an adenosine with a methyl group on it at the exocyclic amine. Okay, so that's M6A. And editing is a little bit different. So editing... Um, for example, ADAR, adenosine deaminase uh, enzymes, will take adenosine and convert it to inosine, okay? And that has really, really strong implications because, for example, if you had a codon 
in your messenger RNA that an, an A was necessary for a specific amino acid, mm-hmm. that that would be converted to an inosine. And that inosine may be read as a guanosine, for example, because inosine and guanosine look very similar. Right. One has the exocyclic amine, the other does not. Inosine is missing the exocyclic amine, but it's still read like a G. Okay, so you have an A to G change. Now, so super cool. Um, there was this paper published in uh, PNAS, I think a few years ago, which showed that uh, squids, okay, this is probably, I think, my favorite example of, of RNA editing. Uh, squids have ion channels in their neurons and they respond to, um, you know, gradients in, in, uh, salt concentration, ion concentration, things like that. And forgive me if I screw up the biology, but the point was that of the paper was to show that the editing of the RNA that makes that channel can be dynamic to help the squid respond to calcium concentration. So for example, if the concentration is too high, the RNA can be edited on the fly in in the the synapse of the neurons to stop the ion channel from responding to the concentration, to regulate the concentration, so to potentiate the signal. Yeah, so imagine now, so, you know, it's also been shown in, inside the brain. So, for example, to get back to neurons in the brain, the prevalence of editing, RNA editing, is the highest in the brain. If you compare all cell types in humans, in the brain is where the most RNA editing is occurring. I have to ask, is this in a mature individual? Because I think when you're, when you're growing up... You're- yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's more dynamic. It's more dynamic, yeah. But in a, in a mature, you know, adult, um, almost, I don't know the exact numbers, but it's overwhelming majority of the editing occurs or has been shown to be in neurons in the brain. So that goes back to the to to the thing that, um, you know, it's it gives you a level of of time to be dynamic. Now, the the thing about editing is that it hasn't been shown to be a two way street. So you do the deamination, you go from A to I. It hasn't been shown to go from I to A. So unlike M six A methylation, which can be deposited and then taken off, right. editing seems to be a one way street. Now, the way you compensate for that is to decay the message. Okay, so. There are many ways to try to compensate for that. Um, but yes, fascinating. It's really amazing. Sorry, I'm just like stunned. This is, this is awesome. This stuff yeah. I never looked into or even thought about. Um, actually, I looked at a few of your papers. So after reading another one of your papers uh, titled uh, Structural, Imprints in, um, Structural Imprints in Vivo Decode RNA Regulatory Mechanisms, I noticed you have a novel technique for measuring RNA called IC shape. Mm-hmm. Um, do you mind going into detail about how this works and how it's important? Because I think that this is an important technique to talking about understanding all of this RNA that you're talking about. Yeah. Um, so for, for decades, let's start with from a historical perspective. Um, so for decades, uh, researchers have studied RNA structure. And the reason that, that they've studied RNA structure is because, you know, over and over and over again, it's been shown for every class of biomolecule that, if you can really understand the structure, you can perhaps build hypotheses and gain novel insight into the function of what RNA molecules are doing. Okay. Now, um, because RNA has sort of lagged behind historically in experimental measurements of structure and things like that in comparison to proteins. So we've been studying protein structure for a really, really long time. 
And the good thing that's come of that is we have a very, very good understanding of what protein structure means. And what I mean by that is, let's say, for example, that you're a grad student and you discover some gene that's different and you are differentially regulated and you want to know what it could be doing. You can go into BLAST or whatever, NCBI, and search the sequence and ask the question, what are all the other proteins that have similar sequence, right? And one of the things it'll do is it'll say, oh, it matches very well with other proteins that are kinases. They have a kinase domain. And the reason we know that is because we've done a lot of really good biochemistry and, and, and biology on proteins for a long time, and it's so good that you can actually have a hypothesis to test because of that. We know the structure of kinases. We know the structure of kinase domains. We know that they are responsible for depositing phosphate groups on proteins, right? So awesome. I can do that. You can't do that with RNA, okay? You can't do it, period. And the main problem is that we don't know enough. We're so far behind that you can't make the same logical connection as a scientist and have hypotheses to test. Okay, so that's historically, we have a long way to go to get to the point where we can do experiments faster. We know a lot about what RNA structure is doing in control biology. We can make predictions about structural domains in RNA, right? And so so the, the point is that we need to develop ways to measure the structure of a lot of RNAs in parallel and possibly even inside their native environment, which is the cell. Okay. So for a long time, uh, scientists studied RNA structure in test tubes, and they studied portions of RNA, like broke it up into domains, because studying an entire RNA, which can be, for example, the average messenger RNA length is 1.2 kb, all right? It's really hard to study that, okay? In And from conventional uh, footprinting methods. So when I went to Howard's lab, I had this idea, which at the time was really wonky, which was, what if we could study the structure of every RNA inside the cell at the same time in one experiment? Okay, so that was the idea behind IC shape, and it took four years to do it. <laughs> it was a really long time, very painful. <clears throat> But what IC shape does is ask the question at a single nucleotide resolution, what parts of the RNA are single stranded? Okay. And this is really important because if you can measure things that are single stranded, you can predict RNA structure pretty well. Um, and that's what motivated us to do this. So IC shape was a method to take chemistry and apply it to a transcriptome-wide measurement, like I was talking before, and measure the structure of 10,000, 16,000 RNAs in one experiment. Now, to go a little bit further, the reason that it, I think it was so powerful was because it allowed us to do things like footprint RNA-protein interactions and footprint RNA modifications like M6A, but do it on an entire transcriptome and make the connection between what RNAs what's going on with an RNA, being bound by a protein, modified, whatever, and how it changes structure or how structure regulates that process. Yeah. And so the cool thing we're doing now in my lab is we're trying to take this technique and apply it to many different cells to understand the logic behind how RNA structure could be 
of the same same gene, same RNA, could be different in different cells, and that's what imparts unique regulation to that cell. Since your lab investigates the relationship between RNA function and disease, what types of disease models are you interested in studying? Yeah. So because um, we're doing a lot of technique development, most of our time is spent on uh, modeling disease in cell culture, so much more simple models in comparison to flies or mice or anything like that. Um, but we're very interested in um, using uh, mouse embryonic stem cells, which you can differentiate into many different types of cells in a controllable and predictable way. So that's what we do. And we're using it to model uh, basically two types of disease, mostly in uh, cancer, so breast cancers, and also in uh, neurological disorders like ALS. Um, so those are the two types of diseases that we're focused on. And we focus on them mostly because the, the ability to differentiate the embryonic stem cells into those types of cells is very well worked out by other labs. And we take advantage of the efficiency of doing that and that sort of biology that's very interesting. But also, we get a lot of material that we can play with and things like that. So if you're developing new techniques, it's important to have other things that are very well controlled because our new techniques are not necessarily very well controlled. So we focus on those two types of diseases. What are some misconceptions that someone that's not familiar with your research might have about it? That it's hard. It's hard. <laughs> um, I think, I think uh, from the outside looking in, um, being able to take, you know, chemistry, cell biology, genomics, structural biology, and wrap them into one project, I think would be a little bit overwhelming for any young scientist that might think about joining the lab or reading about the research and things like that. But in fact, um, I think that it's a misconception that it's difficult to do that. But in reality, I don't think that it is. And the main reason for that is because what I tell students when they come in my lab is that I want you to do something that you're interested in. And in fact, there have been people that join my lab that are not interested in any things that we're doing, but they're interested in doing something else that's related to RNA. And then I just let them do that for better or for worse. I'm not sure. <laughs> but, but, um, you know, I think that's, that's one misconception is that it's really hard to think about all these things together. And it's not, it's a lot of fun actually. So the second misconception is that we are just inventors of tools and we don't discover any new biology. And I think that's probably the, the biggest misconception, at least from granting agencies, that's been the biggest misconception. Um, but in fact, we are very focused on learning about biology. And in fact, all of our questions start from biology. They don't start from, oh, let's make some probe and then maybe we'll be able to apply it to some RNA problem. It's the exact opposite. What are the things that people can't do what are the open questions? You know, the best thing about the RNA field is that um, it's full of contradictions because somebody will do some assay, get some result. Somebody will do a different assay, get an opposite result. And nobody knows which one is correct, right? And it turns out that most of the time it's because people aren't either A, measuring the right thing or B, measuring it with high enough accuracy and stringency to make the conclusions that they want to make. Um, so that's where chemistry and chemical tools come in because of their ability to make very precise measurements. So 
Yeah. So we, we are very, very focused on biology. I think it's a misconception to think that we're just a bunch of chemists running around making things and then trying to find ways to apply them. That's not the truth. Yeah. It's all focused from biology. I can relate with that because I, you know, part of our education here is that we're like teaching assistants. And at least on my end, it's like a general bio course for non-bio majors. And then they're like, why do we have to take these bio courses or why do we need to take these chemistry courses? I'm not, you know, I want to go to medical school. I don't, how does this apply to me? How does, how does general chemistry apply to me? And some of these, I guess, you know, you bring up a really good point is that you have to... I don't know, acquire these knowledge and like some of the things like general chemistry might help you in your biology research or thinking out problems or like sometimes you have to reinvent the wheel before you get answers. Right. So, so for, I have a lot of students like that in my undergraduate curriculum. And the thing I tell them is that there's nothing scarier than a doctor that doesn't understand how drugs work. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the, you know, oftentimes, um, you know, the students that major in biology or, um, that are, have aspirations to go to medical school. They don't really understand the value of organic chemistry. They just say, man, organic chemistry is really hard. It's a terrible class. I just want to get through it. And then I'll move on to the next thing. But every single prescription that you assign as a physician is because somebody understood organic chemistry. And so if you don't understand the principles of how chemicals work, it's pretty scary to think that you're going to be giving me my prescriptions. So I think that's some advice that young students should know is that you should pay attention to the chemistry. It's important. So actually, um, after hearing about IC shape, I think I've learned that science is an investment, not an instant payout. Um, what advice do you have to give to our listeners about this idea? Yeah. So, um, so science is, um, so, so science by itself is a major investment in, in yourself and also in what you're trying to learn. So I think, you know, the other thing that I always think about as a professor is um, why do students want to go to grad school? Because there's a difference between going to grad school because that's the next thing that I should do versus, oh, I want to go to grad school because I'm really interested in in enriching my life, yeah. right? So the investment, it's every, every – I don't know if this is what you're referring to or not, but every project – Every PhD student, every, you know, experiment you do is an investment. And I think that, you know, so for example, when I went to go do my postdoc, I thought it was really, really hard when I first got there because I didn't know anything about what I was doing and I had to remind myself that it's okay to be patient because if I am patient and I really take my time and I invest in learning the things that I need to learn, that I will be successful eventually. Right. Um, and, you know, the, so I see shape, for example, took a really long time because we failed a lot just over and over and over again, trying to, yeah, trying to optimize things and figure out what's the best reagent, what's the best way to interpret the data, what's the best way to make the sequencing libraries, the best cell to do it in, you know, how do cells respond, this, that, and the other thing. And that was a really valuable lesson to learn. And it is an investment in yourself. And it is an investment in the project. Yeah. So there's actually, let me just say one more thing, which is yeah, there is a famous football coach, Nick Saban. Uh, I was coach at university of Alabama and his coaching style relies on something which he calls the process. Okay. So the process means that you pay attention to each individual play 
and each individual drill, and you commit yourself to doing the best job you can in that single play, in that single drill. You don't focus on winning championships or winning, you know, the sectional or whatever. You focus on how can I be the best player in that moment. And in my lab, I really do try to preach this. Sometimes my grad students just like laugh at me, whatever, but I'm always talking about the process. It's like, if I'm going to run a Western, I want to run the best Western possible. If I'm going to run a gel, best gel possible. If I'm going to make a molecule and purify it by column, I want to do the best purification that I can possible. Because if you have that mindset that you can do the things you want to do, each individual thing, the best you can, then everything else is going to take care of itself. The data is going to just, it will come to you with time, right? And you will not worry about, oh, I kind of did that experiment sloppy that day. I'm not sure if this is real data or not. If you're very focused on doing the best experiment you can, the data you have is more reliable and the thing, the things you produce at the end are more reliable. It's a better story. It's a better job, things like that. So I think that's something that young people should really, really pay close attention to is the process of investing in themselves. From history to RNA, I want to thank Dr. Spitali for being here today. Thanks again, Dr. Spitali. Yeah. Happy to be here. This is Radio Bio signing off. Radio Bio is supported by the Quantitative and Systems Biology Graduate Group at the University of California, Merced.